This podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. We respectfully pay tribute to their wisdom and custodianship of the lands and waterways. We acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. <gasps> this is Money, Power, Freedom. This is Money, Power, Freedom. Nah, this is Money, Power, Freedom. That's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> it's Money, Power, Freedom. Hello and welcome to Money, Power, Freedom, a new podcast series created by the Victorian Women's Trust in partnership with Bank Australia, the bank with clean money. My name is Cal Wilson. I'm a comedian who is frightened of money. And with me, I have journalist and writer Santilla Chingayipe. In today's episode, we're talking about love and money, specifically in the context of violence, abuse and control. If this raises any issues for you, call 1-800-RESPECT. For a full list of support services, take a look at our show notes for this episode. But first, some disclaimers. As wonderful as we are, we are not financial advisors. Let me make that clear. Use this podcast as a springboard and seek out independent financial advice for your own unique circumstances. We use the term woman throughout this podcast. This applies to anyone who identifies as a woman. Everyone is welcome here. We also acknowledge the strength of our non-binary friends who also face significant barriers to their economic security. So money and emotion, as we've already talked about, have are quite closely intertwined. So we need to look at how we foster a healthy relationship and a healthy bank balance at the same time. It's a complicated topic. It's even more complicated because we don't want to talk about money. So this is a really important episode because we're going to be hearing real stories from people who work with survivors and financial institutions to prevent financial abuse. And we're going to find out what kind of support is available. We're about to hear from Georgie Proud, who's a project manager at Women's Information Referral Exchange, or WIRE. And they've created a series of websites to help prevent financial abuse, such as Women Talk Money. For people that might not be familiar with what financial abuse is, what is it? So financial abuse is when someone controls your access to money. So it most often occurs in romantic relationships, but can occur in other kind of familial relationships. Mm -hmm. The second most common is an adult child um, controlling their elderly parents' money. That's another common way that Mm -hmm. it occurs. And it is a form of family violence, and in most Australian states it's recognised in the law. But it's really about asserting power and control over a person. So it's a pattern of behaviours. It's not just kind of a one-off thing, but there's a huge range of different behaviours that can be abusive. Mm -hmm. So it can look like anything from paying you an allowance and not giving you access to bank accounts or any of the shared money, forcing you to sign on to loans that you don't understand or don't really want to, but you've been made to, um, stopping you from going to work, stopping you from studying, so actually preventing you from earning Mm -hmm. your own money. And it it can be really complicated as well. So quite often it can start off or it might look like a sign of affection. So it might be like, oh, don't you worry about the bills. I'll take care of all the money. You know, you're too stressed. I'll just do it all. But then when you want to have access to the online accounts or something, you're not allowed to do that. So it's quite insidious, isn't it? Like you say, it can start off 
without you realising that it's happening. Uh, it's certainly an area that I had not sort of considered before, but is it something that people are becoming more aware of or are people still surprised that it's a form of abuse? I think people are slowly becoming more aware of it, but quite often still, are, you know, I'll just be talking to friends or people about what I do and they've never heard of it and mm-hmm. I have to explain it to them. And often someone might say, oh, actually that's happened to me or that happened to my mum so I think once people realise that it's a thing, they get it, but mm-hmm. it's still quite hidden. And because we don't talk about money mm. a lot in our society, it's quite a hidden form of abuse. And so you're saying that we don't really talk about money. What's a good way to actually have a healthy relationship conversation about money? Like, how do you start to make sure you're both sort of okay or on the same page? So I think a good way to approach it is to start early. So when you're first kind of getting into the relationship, if you can, if you're already past that, that's fine. Just start now. But maybe start off with some easier conversations that are not stressful Mm -hmm. and not have any pressure associated with them. So don't start off with, we've got this massive bill and you're both very stressed about it and it might not go well. Try and start off with Yeah, something like, okay, if you won the lottery, what would you spend the money on? Mm -hmm. And then if you say, oh, I'd pay off all my debts and your partner says, oh, I'd go on this massive holiday, you can talk about your priorities with those things. Or if you just talk about things like setting goals or if you've got savings goals or whatever it is, talk about kind of those easier subjects before you get into more serious things like combining finances. Mm -hmm. And I think another really important thing is to recognise that money is an emotional issue, which we often don't give that credit. And so if you kind of go into these conversations, you might be feeling emotions that you don't even realise. You Mm. might be anxious about it. You know, if you've not had a lot of money growing up, you might have a different experience of money than if your partner had plenty and, you know, was fine (laughs) growing up. So yeah, it's kind of important to think about those things as well. And that maybe there are these emotions bubbling away that you're not really conscious of. Part of your work is obviously talking to the financial sector about financial abuse. Where are institutions sort of failing in protecting women who are victim um, of financial abuse? Well, I think a lot of financial institutions are now starting to kind of recognise financial abuse and trying to put policies in place, which is really good, but there's still a long way to go. So really all frontline staff, and I would say probably all staff throughout the whole organisation, but you've got to start somewhere, Mm -hmm. need to have family violence training and there need to be strong policies in place about what the procedures are and what help is available to victims of family violence. And the staff need to know what those procedures are. So it's all well and good having them written down, but they need to have the support and the training to be able to potentially recognise financial abuse when it's in front of them. And then there's also other institutions like the family law courts and the child support agency that inherently fail women and need a complete overhaul. So many um, survivors say that the courts are where the abuse has been 
perpetuated the most Mm. through things like legal fees, dragging out the court process. So legal fees are as high as possible, hiding assets, their partner pretending that they're bankrupt or something when really their assets Mm. are just hidden. There's all these ways that our institutions contribute to that. Mm. So how do we keep ourselves financially safe in a relationship? I think my best piece of advice would be to never give up your own bank account, Mm -hmm. even if you are joining accounts with your partner. Always have your own account, even with just a tiny amount in it, so that if something happens, you have access Mm -hmm. to some money. I'm pretty sure an elderly relative of mine calls it running away money. Yes. Yep. So you can think of it that way. (laughs) A lot of people, when I say things like this, get really maybe defensive. Because it takes the romance out of it. It does. And you're like, well, my partner's never going to do that to Mm. me. But you don't know. And there's no harm in having it there. Mm. And the only thing is you may need to talk to your partner about If you want to tell them that you've got it, it might not be safe for you to do Mm. that. But if they do know that you have it, just say that it's not about not trusting them, but that's, you know, your security. So Mm. the other thing I think would be just to learn what financially abusive behaviours are, what they look like, what the red flags are, just so that you know that if you're kind of in a relationship and a couple of things happen that you're not quite sure about, then you can recognise it and get out if you want to. Financial abuse, uh, does it happen by itself or is it always in conjunction with other abusive behaviours? It can be isolated, but it does often occur with other abusive behaviours. So mostly with emotional abuse, Mm -hmm. but it can occur with physical abuse as well. A lot of people don't really realise that's what they're experiencing until someone tells them. Mm. Next up, we're hearing from Lorraine Belloy, who is the co-founder of African Family Services, which is an organisation which supports African migrants to access support and also provides cultural awareness training for businesses and organisations. And she's going to tell us about the biggest issues for women in the community that she's working with. Most of the clients that were from mainstream services, women going through family violence, a lot of complex issues, I'm not engaging well or effectively with the organisations, workers not building rapport. And from there, we come in providing secondary consultation. The women that we've been working with are the women who've gone through family violence and then are also going through challenges post-crisis, accessing employment, healthcare, mental health, not knowing how to address that social isolation. So our clients or the families come with one issue and then you realize there's layers of challenges that they're going through that would have been prevented ages ago had they been informed the proper way, had they been advocated for the right way, or if they'd access services really. Mm. But when I say women, we mean women and families, but we also work with men. I'm curious to sort of hear from you about some of the barriers that women from the various African communities face who perhaps don't speak English as a first language and how difficult that might be for them in navigating things like superannuation and the sorts of things that can help contribute to their economic security. I'll give an example. So we've had women that we've worked with who've gone through family violence and they've left the perpetrator. And when you sit down with them, they'll explain, for example, they contributed to purchasing the property. They were running childcare services in their homes that paid for the deposit. But what happens then, they were limited in English. They couldn't understand contracts. So 
the husband or the ex is the one who's in charge of the finances. And in that context now, they don't know where the money is going. And some of the women we've worked with is he was shipping money offshore. Hmm. So by the time she left, there's no assets to access because she didn't even know where the money was going. And then you come across issues where they have to access Centrelink. They really want to be empowered. They want to start working. And then you have to look into, you've got three children. You have to look into childcare. You have to look into um, the barriers into accessing employment if your English is not fluent enough, if your computer literacy is quite low as well, how do you then juggle that? And how do you then juggle also the legal issues that are coming with that? We've had women too scared to access um, child support because that can provoke the perpetrator. And how it can provoke the perpetrator, because I understand Centrelink will say, no, don't worry, we'll advocate for you. A social worker, you know, Centrelink will advocate for you. They can advocate for you. But when you go home and he's contacting your relatives, he's contacting your friends, uh, making threats. So some women are too scared to do that. Mm -hmm. When we come in, we're very culturally sensitive. We don't treat women as clients. We treat them as, you know, another sister. So the way we we talk about the issues and the and the struggles is not it's not so direct and you know mm-hmm. the terminology that you use you have to be very mindful so you cannot focus on one area because you need to understand what intersectionality means mm-hmm. and that means one area doesn't fix the problem it's looking at all the underlying yeah. issues mm-hmm. that are leading to where people are or or the challenges or the vulnerabilities that are that are presented Lorraine, you've brought up Mm. the phrase intersectionality in this conversation and just for the benefit of people that might not have an idea of what that means, how do you define intersectionality? I define intersectionality as different contributing factors that can place people at disadvantage. There's not one isolating issue. So you can be, for example, can I address (laughs) Santilla? You can be an African woman. Yep. And be a migrant and come to Australia. So some of the challenges will be, for example, let's say if you face racism or discrimination, then another challenge is what sort of career path you're you're targeting as well. Is it male dominated? Um, Then there's the isolation. And what does that bring? Mental health issues and challenges. There's financial, you know, difficulties as well. Um, Economic empowerment, trying to access employment. So those are all different factors that can affect your progress to where you need to go or how services need to look at ways in which to support you because not one issue is going to fix things. It's more looking at what are the underlying issues that can map out where someone is and how do we help them to get to the next stage. Our next guest is Stephanie Tonkin, and she's a lawyer and the head of uh, community programs at Justice Connect. And she previously worked at West Justice, a community organisation that provides free legal help to people in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. What can you tell us about some of the projects you did with West Justice? This project was funded by the Law Mayor's Charitable Foundation and it had two main parts to it. The first was to really get in and work with industry to improve its responses to family violence 
and financial abuse. And also it had a casework element. So a really interesting case, which I think also highlights the work that we did with industry was a case, not her real name, but Ingrid, our client. She came to us after her home had been burnt down and she had been subsequently contacted by insurance assessors. There'd been a claim made, but on her insurance policy or on the insurance policy over the house, but it certainly wasn't made by her. And what transpired was some time ago, the insurance policy, uh, which was uh, covering the jointly owned and joint mortgaged home that she lived in with her now ex-husband and kids had been transferred out of her name and into the husband's name alone. He then burnt down the property and she was left living in a refuge with her two kids. Um, that's when she came to see us. Uh, shocking, shocking case. Mm. Um, but what we managed to do is, in addition to helping her individually and working with, thankfully, with uh, contacts we had at that particular insurer to get a good outcome for her, it also fell into a really tricky and grey area of law that needs reform. Um, the law at the moment still says that act of one person who might be jointly insured will impact the other person's right to claim on an insurance policy. So what we managed to do was actually bring that to the attention of the Insurance Council of Australia, who are then taking it into account in their review of the General Insurance Code of Practice, which took place last year. And there is movement now in the industry to address issues like Ingrid's case. So again, having that ability to work with industry is amazing and that true cross-sector collaboration is important. But that's also a good example of how perverse economic abuse yeah, can be. Yeah. 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 So do you work with banks to say she's behind on the mortgage because he's left or like are you able to sort of help in that way or loans yeah. being defaulted or things like that? A typical case for a community legal centre or a financial counsellor tends to be seeing a client maybe two years, five years down the track after separation. The sorts of things that are coming up are lots of bills and debts that have been incurred over many years, say five phones taken out in one person's name, never repaid, multiple gas and electricity bills that have been, you know, defaulted and onsold to debt collectors, housing debts, yeah, personal loans taken out. Sometimes, well, many times our clients don't even know that they have those debts in their name because they've never been allowed to access the finances yeah, right. or see, you know, their bank balance or what accounts are in their name. So there's generally multiple things and it's generally happened over a period of time. And, you know, with credit reporting, the debt and the impact, it, it stays with someone for a long time after separation. Mm. Yeah. And so have institutions been open to you working with them? What was really interesting about this project was we started it soon after the Royal Commission into Family Violence mm -hmm. in Victoria took place. And it was really fantastic that there was an entire chapter dedicated to financial security in that report. And it, it mandated some reforms. So in fact, what we saw after the Royal Commission was there was actually a real momentum. Um, industry regulators were tasked with creating responses to family violence and some ombudsman services like the Energy and Water Ombudsman of Victoria had a cross-sector family violence forum really early on and it really set the tone and companies did start to, you know, work alongside the community sector to create family violence policies, to genuinely change their systems, to put better security in their computer 
systems that they work on and provide genuine hardship in family violence cases and do little things like change their processes so they don't require proof of family violence if someone's saying, I'm a victim of family violence. So real genuine changes and that's fantastic. However, the companies that we've worked with, banks, energy companies, telcos, water businesses and some debt collectors, they're all the top tier companies and that's great because they have the market share but equally, they're huge organisations. So if I'm a person and I've just found out that I, you know, that there are all these debts in my name that I never knew about and I'm found out that I've experienced financial abuse, I'm not going to be calling the heads of the hardship who go to the mm-hmm. family violence conferences and attend the roundtables. I'm going to call maybe a call centre offshore. I'm going to call a frontline worker who isn't exposed to the same level of training and isn't necessarily going to deal with my matter in the same way that someone more senior might. Also, these are the top tier companies, which means that smaller companies in certain industries are very early along on this journey. And government in its role as a service provider as well, it's actually lagging very far behind. So things like social security, car registration, Vic Roads, those sorts of agencies have a lot of work to do. With your work with West Justice, that was predominantly in the Western suburbs, which is one of the most culturally diverse areas in Melbourne. What sort of barriers did you notice in terms of some of the women that came to access your services um, on top of being in these incredibly traumatic situations, but having to navigate it if I'm just thinking English isn't your first language, you know, if they're women who were on temporary visa systems. I mean, how does that factor into just it being very difficult for them to leave an economically abusive relationship? Yeah, we did see a mix. I think people were coming from all over because that's the nature of the refuge system. But those we did see um, who were on visas, the visa itself was used as a form of economic abuse, family violence. So it was used as a threat. And then as soon as something happened, say there was a, a violent incident and so the perpetrator was taken away by the police and an intervention order was made, nothing in the control of the victim survivor the visa was cancelled by the perpetrator. So it, it's, it was another tool of abuse, which was shocking. Also, I saw a few cases of dowry abuse uh, or abuse from people offshore, just that control and and requiring money to be sent back overseas. And so it, it was very much a mixed bag. But taking it back a level, also there was a lack of community for some of the clients mm-hmm. that I saw. Mm-hmm. They became extremely isolated after having separated from their partner and, and their world if they'd just recently come over from overseas. But most of those women that I worked with also didn't want to return either. So, mm. And so what sort of support is there available for women leaving an abusive situation that's financial abuse or otherwise? Are there places of support that you want them to know about? Financial counsellors are critical players in this space. And in Victoria, we're lucky to have specialist family violence uh-huh. financial counsellors as well. There's not enough and they're severely underfunded, but there's the National Debt Helpline, 1-800-007-007, and that can link you in with a local financial counsellor as well. National Association of Community Legal Centres is another one that can link you in with a community lawyer who can also help you in providing legal advice, information and referral as well. More generally, coming back to the industry point though, something that might be useful for listeners is if you do have a problem, you can ask banks, your energy companies, your telcos for help. Most of them, they're required by their regulators to have hardship and support packages available. Um, Banks 
can pay money to you to help you get back on your feet. Um, there are hardship options such as reduction or waiver of debt entirely, clearing of credit history and payment plans. People should consider asking for strict security on their accounts so mm-hmm. that their address isn't given out on, a, say, a joint account. And always ask to speak with a hardship team because that's how you're going to get elevated up to those teams with a specialist yep. training who know what to do. And complain internally or externally to Ombudsman Services mm. because we need to keep that attention and focus mm. on on actually responding to family violence. Yeah. Sometimes I think there's a danger in turning the personal experience into something that's quite academic and theoretical. So I think it's also important to keep remembering that the survivors are people and they're not just stats. And so to bring it back into a more personal space, we've asked Madison Griffiths, who's a friend of the Trust, to share a poem that she wrote on the subject. She's a writer, artist and poet, and her latest award-winning podcast series, Tender, and covers what happens when women leave abusive relationships. Women know currency in ways men don't. Can taste it in the vinaigrette at dinner. Can feel it in the clammy palm of an eager patron who sinks piss and the occasional sideward glance in a crowded pub. We're told it can be found in our flesh, our briefs, our fingernails if we look hard enough, but not that hard. We'll ponder over the mathematics of it in chemist aisles, perusing through salmon-coloured razors, lotions, soft fabrics, cherry-tinted cream. If pink is worth less, why does it cost more? I wonder. Women know penalty rates in ways men don't. We'll scatter and sow together the seeds for a family, a forest, a panting, bustling ecosystem for free. My father used to tell me that time is money, and I want to ask him, whose time? How long did it take for him to flatten butter onto bread every morning, to iron pleats and gathers from tunics, shirts, blazers, to launder copper-coloured warmth, devotion, a mother's liquid assets, Women know worth in ways men don't. Know their own worth. Have to. The way our value throbs and sings. The way it persists even still. Our worth is not borrowed or pinched. It is not fleeting magic, game show lights and bravo, paper money. Our worth is not a love affair littered with interest. It is ours. to Money Power Freedom, created and produced by the Victorian Women's Trust in partnership with Bank Australia, the bank with clean money. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. On the next episode of Money Power Freedom... One of the conversations I think we also need to be having alongside that financial security conversation for women is about happiness and being able to be a full person. Something I've tried to encourage people to do before they have children is do a financial audit of their life and of their partnership and have a really, really tough look at who earns what, who does what, who's responsible for what, and how much of that work has nothing to do with money. Most recently, I've been developing a theory about how time is a resource people need for their health, and time has become one of the most precious resources and indeed an extraordinarily important resource when we try to think about power. Baby, baby,
For more info about this podcast, our guests and resources, you can use at home, head to vwt.org.au forward slash podcast. Follow us for updates on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Vic Women's Trust. Money Power Freedom has been mixed and recorded by Gavin Neighbour at Hallwood Recording Studios at the University of Melbourne. Our co-producers are Maria Chikudi and Ali oliver Perham. We're indebted to our team of researchers and project workers, including Ebony Westman, Queenie Chung, Audrey Vong, Jacinta Hennekin, Georgia Jenkins-Smales, Jess Naylor, Bryony Green, Esther Davies-Brown, basically everyone at the Victorian Women's Trust. Huge thanks to folks across various sectors who helped shape our content in the name of gender equality. Our excellent theme song is Shut Up, Show Me With Your Shoes, lovingly donated by the Sugar-Fed Leopards. Thanks to all of our guests and you, our dear listener. Till next time. I'm